Good morning, everyone. It's my great privilege to be with you this morning. This morning's scripture reading is going to come from John chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 3, and I'm going to read through verse 29. In honor of God's word, would you please stand with me? Verse 3 begins speaking of Jesus. This is the word of God. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have Nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Uh, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you Do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, I ask right now for the unction of your Holy Spirit to aid me as I preach your word. I pray that you give me ability to be faithful to the text and to honor you in all that I say. I also pray for all who are gathered here that you would grant us ears to hear. You would give us soft hearts that our wills would be molded by your holiness. I pray, Spirit of God, even as the rain is pouring, come. Come now, O God, and let us encounter you as we honor your holy word. Oh God, we ask for these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Perhaps you've heard the saying, uh, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. I know that I've not only heard it, but I've seen it in action. It's probably why people know the saying. Uh, in this circumstance, it's not necessarily contempt, but sometimes familiarity with the Bible story can almost make you blind to some of the things that are in the story. Uh, I found as I was studying this text that, as is often the case, there were things there that I hadn't seen, even though I had read them many, many, many times. And in fact, in this particular account, I was actually startled at some of the things that Jesus said to the degree that it sent me off on an extensive study, because Jesus here just makes some audacious statements. Now, this is not unusual in John's gospel. It's amazing how many times John brings out the statements that Jesus made, and many times they're some of his his most jaw-dropping statements that he makes. And, and he does that here. And in chapter 5 that follows, there are even more. They just compile. Uh, by the time you get to 6, you wonder, what else can this person say that will offend people or shake our world? As we come to this text, we're going to find that in John 4. So I hope, at least at the minimum, as we rehearse this text together you'll at least be just re-familiarized with the text. Uh, I pray even more that God might give you insight maybe into something that you hadn't seen here in the text uh, before. And so as we come today, the, the heading of the sermon is something so 
superior. Something so superior. Uh, Jesus Christ has come. And with him, there's a superiority of revelation that supersedes everything that ever came before. He is certainly in continuity with the revelation of God. But he is the apex. He's the top. Uh, Oftentimes, I'll use the word Jesus is the superlative of God. Uh, he, He speaks in the utmost when he speaks through Jesus Christ. And so as we come to him, we find in Jesus... Uh, all that the Bible is leading us to when we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. He's so superior. And in this text, we're going to see that unfold as we go through chapter 4. So this morning, even from the title, Something So Superior, I just used three S's. I'm going to use a whole series of S's. We're just going to do a quick bird's eye view, and then I'm really going to get into the meat around verse 20, because that's really where I want to land Uh, But let me just start with the first one we'll see in verse 4. Without understanding Samaria, you probably won't understand the tension that's in this text. Uh, These were the people that were to the north. And if you know biblical history, even from the Old Testament, when the tribes split, there were two tribes that remained in the south. The tribes that were in the north were eventually taken into captivity. And then some of them came back. But what happened was there was a, a lot of mixed races that took place within that group. And this ends up being the formulation of who the Samaritans are. So the Jews didn't like that part of who they were. And the Samaritans didn't much care for the Jews in the way they looked down their nose at them. So they lived near one another, but actually just despised one another. I used to live in a region where Fairfield Union was on one side of the county road and Sheridan High School was on the other. And if I, my house literally was about 100 yards away from the border. People from our church came to the same church. But listen, when they played against one another, they sat on opposite sides of the field. <laughs> they just weren't friendly on a normal basis with one another. You either were committed to Sheridan or you were committed to Fairfield Union. You couldn't be a mixed one of those. And that's kind of how the Jews and Samaritans were with one another. Notice also something we could pass by here really quickly. Secondly, and it's in Jesus' request. And this is the second S. There's a sincerity in Jesus' request that if you think of it just for a moment, notice what the text says. Wearied as he was from his journey. Well, I just read right past that without thinking about the fact That this is the eternal Son of God who took to himself true humanity to the point that he bore in his body the weariness that we would experience as we go about our daily task. Jesus is genuinely thirsty. He's genuinely tired. He's experiencing our true experience of humanity. Well, we have such a mediator for us who has shared our sufferings. Jesus here is genuine in his request for this water. Notice thirdly, we'll go to the supplier of living water. And this is in verses 9 through 15. Jesus is trying to get this woman beyond a discussion about a literal drink to something he wants to provide. 
Jesus is moving as quickly as he can to minister to her soul. Notice from the request for water how quickly Jesus turns the discussion. If you knew who it was who asked of you, you would have asked of him. And he would have given you living water. Uh, he, he's ministering to the soul. Jesus is thirsty and weary. And yet he's concerned about the soul of this woman who is at the well. He is the supplier of living water. Uh, John's gospel is so rich in the way that he presents Jesus and all the, the, the multifaceted ways that he comes to us and ministers his goodness and gospel and his truth to us. And here, the imagery of living water that becomes in us, a spring of living water welling up unto eternal life. Now, if somebody's advertising that, you'd better listen up. You see, that's much better than anything you could sell on a billboard or we could put on YouTube. This is the Son of God offering her something that would last not just now, but for eternity, and would become in her now a spring that forever she would enjoy. You see, one of the things we should anticipate in heaven is the reality that we're going to experience the same Holy Spirit in fuller measures than we've ever known, because that spring that starts now continues on to eternity. One of the joys about meeting here is that we will continue as the people of God to meet and enjoy the fountain of God forever. Jesus is offering her something way more than temporal drink, temporal thirst. He's offering not only himself, but the very goodness that he comes to bring to us. You can almost hear the irony in verse 12 if you miss this little phrase. It's John smirks often, I think, when he writes. Um, if you think about the different gospel writers, one thing about John is I think John just remembers statements that people made that just put their foot right in their mouth. And he records those often. Uh, in fact, throughout John's gospels, it's, it's one of the unique things in his writings is John just shows stupid things that people say. And this is one of them. Are you greater than our Father Jacob, he gave us the well and drank from him himself, as did his sons and his livestock. See, she places Jacob's livestock over this one who's talking to her. Uh, not only is he greater than Jacob and his sons, the old reason Jacob existed is to bring this one into the world. The reason God set forth Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that one day out of Jacob's son, there would be from the lineage of Judah one named Jesus the Christ. This is not only one who Jacob knew. This is Jacob's God. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Oh, what an understatement. What a silly statement in light of the reality now, those of us who have read the introduction of John's gospel, it's almost as if John takes you from his introduction and gives you what's called the catbird seat. Maybe you think of a drama, 
there'd be the curtain there, and you're sitting behind the stage, lifted up high, where you can see not only what the crowd is seeing, but you can see the machinations that are happening behind the stage. John, in his introduction, tells you quite clearly who this is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, we know that from the introduction, thus this question of, are you greater than our father Jacob? Not only is he, but he can provide the very living water that he's offering, for it comes from him. The Spirit is often in Scripture called the Spirit of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Sometimes even in our thoughts about God, we have a tendency to almost separate the Spirit from the Son as, as if we're talking about separations to such a great degree. When the Spirit ministers to us, He ministers Jesus to us. He takes Jesus and his redemptive benefits and applies them to us. And the living water that Jesus is presenting is the blessings of what Jesus, through the Spirit, brings to us. The next test is quick. It's just the sin probing. Why the question or the instruction to go get your husband and bring him back? For her to receive what Jesus had to give, she needed to realize that she had a desperate need in her life for what Jesus had to give. The question not only brought forth her life, but realized the very pattern that she was in that should have caused the aching need for the life of Christ. You see, one of the blessings that God does is he will probe us with his questions. It's wonderful when the Spirit of God prompts and probes and questions. Uh, perhaps you know this from your conversion experience. I can remember from mine. Sensing the convicting power of the Spirit of God. Making me question the whole way that I had lived. The whole belief system that I had adopted, the, the very antagonism towards God, which was in my life, and God began probing and questioning. There was a discomfort there. In fact, I just wanted to say, God, just shut up. But God is seeking worshipers. Boy, don't miss that from this text. He's seeking such to worship. He is a pursuer. Aren't you glad that God didn't just stop pursuing you when you first were hard-headed to the very first questioning that he had? He just keeps asking. And notice, he doesn't just do that when he first brings you to faith. It's a pattern of Jesus inquiring because he's trying to draw you nearer to him. This probing wasn't at all something that was ill-conceived or mean. It's grace. 
Because repentance is grace. And what Jesus is doing is prepping her to receive the living water that he wants to give. See, one of the joys of the Christian life is being able to repent. And one of the ways that God gets us there is he probes us and questions us. And Jesus illustrates this here. I think in verse 20, we come to another essay. This is just the mere sidestepping of sin. Notice how quickly the woman moves from the realization that, yes, Jesus knows a lot about her, and she immediately affirms that he must be a prophet. But she goes immediately to the one of the most controversial religious topics between the two of them. You say we should worship there. We say we should worship here. How do you answer that one? Let's get off my personal life, and let's get over onto this topic. Uh, it, it's a... It's a well, let's see. It's a pattern I know. And if we're honest, it's a pattern you know. One of the things we can often do as the Lord comes to us with that probing question is want to move on to something else. Have you ever been praying and sensed the Lord wanting to speak with you as you're praying about some specific issue? And as that very prompting from the Lord comes, the very next thing you want to do is say, I need to get back to this list. I just, I, my prayer list is really big, and I'll go past that and go back to item three, four, five. And what it is is the Lord's trying to get into that area because he wants to minister to you there. Uh, it's wonderful how the Lord who seeks worshipers just won't let us get away with that. He continues to pursue, and her sidestepping effort here does not get her very far. Uh, the Holy Spirit has been called, now this is not at all meant to be disparaging, the hound of heaven. I don't know if you're from the country at all. We live down south of Chillicothe right on the edge of Boondockville. Uh, when you get seven miles south of Chillicothe, where we live, you get into Appalachia real quick, two more miles, and you hardly see anything that looks like a house there. And people live in them. Uh, so it's, it's a unique world. But down there, it's very common in the evenings to hear people hunting in the night, and they're Hounds are just barking through the hollow, and you can just hear them. And when those hounds get on a raccoon, they'll go and go and go and go until that coon gets up a tree. Uh, it's wonderful to hear because the coons are doing their job. The Spirit of God is the hound of heaven. Pursuing us, bring us near to God, not giving us peace until we're sitting at the Master's feet. How kind. How kind. Aren't you glad that God does not leave us alone? See, what we're seeing here in this story is Jesus is very graciously leading this woman along so that he can bring her to himself. What a joy. Here's the stumbling block. As we come into this section, this is really where I want to land and spend the majority of the rest of the time. It begins in verse 20. 
The stumbling block is the Samaritan heritage and this issue of space. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, notice the woman is relying on her Samaritan heritage. Now, the mountain she's referring to is Mount Gerizim. And again, if that's not familiar with you, it's all right. But the covenant promises, the blessings and curses were instructed in the book of Deuteronomy that when they went into the land, they were to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they sit across from one another, and between them in the valley is Shechem. And they were on each side to antiphonally shout across blessings from one side and then curses from the other. And it was to be a celebration. And what's in the midst, right in the middle, was the altar of God. Because as you heard those, one thing's for sure, we sure don't deserve the blessings coming from that side. And we need help with the curses coming from this side. And God is showing in the altar in the middle, his way is going to be fulfilled in something so superior. But don't miss what I just said was in the middle, Shechem. Abraham, when he very first went into the land, you know where he built his very first altar? At Shechem. Isn't that interesting? See, they had a lot of heritage there. And so they had rejected everything except the first five books of the Old Testament. The Samaritans believed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Numbers, Deuteronomy, they got the Pentateuch right, but they stopped at that point and said, this is the revelation of God, and thus cut themselves off from all that God was doing through the Jews, thereafter thus missing the significance of what God was going to do, not only with where he should be worshipped, but note how he should be worshipped. And the other great significant point was anything related to the Davidic promises out of their Bible. Now, can you imagine how hard it would be to try to minister in a setting where God had continued to reveal what he was going to do and they had cut themselves off because of their heritage, which said, we'll receive this much and no more. That reminds me of things I often hear from people when I talk about the Bible. Oh, I like the Proverbs. Don't care too much for Paul. I really like the book of James. But I don't care too much for the gospel accounts. Or the gospel accounts, well, that's about the kingdom. That has nothing to do with us. It's the church age. I like the epistles. Folks, this still is going on. And when we do so, cutting ourselves off as we're sectioning off the Bible in some ways, we're cutting ourselves off from the forward blessing that God wants to bring us. And they were no different. These people had some of the truth, but the point is by ignoring or denying 
what God had continued to do in his revelation. They were missing the blessing. And the stumbling block was this heritage. See, God had continued to say in Deuteronomy chapter 12, let me just read for you, and this would have been in their Bible. When they come into the land, Deuteronomy 12 verse 5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Now, the unique part is, in future revelation thereafter, God specified that place. It was to be on Mount Zion, and the city was to be Jerusalem, and that's where God's permanent place of establishing his edifice, where people would come to worship him. But the Samaritans had self-picked Gerizim, and thereafter, this tension between parties to say, we've got the right place. No, you've got the right place. Now, notice, place is important to God. In Second Chronicles chapter 6, God specifies, verse 5 and 6, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So the issue here is her heritage was keeping her from realizing that God did have a plan for where he would be worshipped, and that revelation continued to come through the Jews. Not only the place, but the messianic promises of David are in those texts. And by cutting themselves off from that, what they were missing is the promises regarding the place that was right to worship and the person who would bring all the promises to fulfillment They did not know. Jesus is having this uncomfortable conversation so that the woman will be brought into the fuller revelation of God. You know, it's important that we listen to all that God has to say. I can remember when I was a teen. You probably wouldn't have liked me as a teen. I wasn't a very godly man. In fact, I was a rebellious teenager. I can remember one of the times I had done something that got me in trouble at school, and I was supposed to have an after-school suspension of some kind. And my dad, who had tried very hard to, to discipline me as a child, said to me, well, son, after you get done with your suspension, uh, you can just walk home. Now, Fairfield Union was a nice little walk from our house. He told me exactly which route to take. Told me how to go. Told me how to get home. This is exactly what you do tomorrow after your suspension. You have a walk. Give you a lot of time to think about what you were doing there after school anyhow. While I was at school, I talked to one of my buddies, and he said, Oh, that's not the way to go. 
There's a shortcut. I can tell you how to go through the country. It'll cut off several miles. And he laid out the whole plan for me about how to go. So I went his way. And I got home and my dad was there. And he said, son, did you walk home from school? I said, yes, dad, I did. And I really did. I mean, I walked every inch of it. I just walked another way. He said, well, which way did you go? I said, well, Dad, I learned if you cut down Miller Siding and you go down that way, you hit Gun Barrel Road and it comes out on Pleasantville and you come up to Oaklorp and then it comes right out towards our house. His question was simple. Is that the way I told you to come home? You know why that was so pointed? My dad had taken the car to come and pick me up. And I missed it because I did it my way. Boy, we need to heed the word of the living God. We need to believe all of his word. The Samaritans, by cutting themselves off, missed the blessing of all of God's word. They were going their own way. They were like me on Miller Siding Road thinking, boy, look at me. I'm all that in a bag of chips. <laughs> and reality, I was walking rebellion. I wasn't doing as I was told. And in this situation, the Samaritans, by their heritage, were living in rebellion against God. You see, let's bring this right down to us as Christians before I get any further. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that we may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. I believe he is the way, the truth. I can't sing like him. He's really, this guy, he's really good. <laughs> but we just sang it, didn't we? He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In the fullness of time, God has shown us now a better revelation than it ever. Something so superior, Jesus Christ has come. And now that he has, you can't willy-nilly say, I'm going to come to God in any way I please. Our culture loves that message. God hates it. Because it contradicts his holy word. And get this, it demeans his son. One thing we need to realize is God is always going to lift up Jesus in this way. When he is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. But Jesus has to be lifted up no other way. Give him the glory, great things he has done because you come to the Father through Jesus the Son. That path is the path. It's the way. 
Now, this is important in our age, in our culture, because we are really fighting issues in a broad culture war about truth. Jesus is the revelation of God. As the word, he expresses God as no other. And so to come to God in any other way is actually to contradict God. I just started a new job this last week. I am now a contract chaplain at Ross Correctional Institute. I spent my first three days inside a prison last week. The worst orientation I've ever had. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, I, I've never known what it's like to live in fear every hour of every minute that I've been in a job. Never. No. Don't hear me wrongly on that. Boy, the opportunities of ministry were abundant, super abundant. Very grateful that God has opened this door for ministry. But one of the things that disturbs me as a chaplain is I walked out to see the literature that was laying out on the table that was there for prisoners. And it's an amalgamation and some of it the biggest stupidity that you've ever seen in all your life. And I just wanted very secretly to pull a trash can over and just kind of slip a few items off there into the garbage. Because, listen, it's important what you believe. Christian literature is extremely important because it either confirms Jesus Christ or it denies Jesus Christ. It's not just, hey, have a book. If a book is filled with truth, it's a good book. It's a righteous book. It's something we should read. If a book actually denies or diminishes Jesus, it should be in the garbage can. And some of these should be in the garbage can. What I want you to see is the superior has now come. This is going to bring us to the next point, which is the shift that takes place in 21 And 23, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is the text that knocked me upside the head when I studied this passage. Notice what Jesus says. Jerusalem now is also insignificant space. Now, he's either the Lord or he's a lunatic here. Because Jerusalem had been the designated space by God in his holy word in all the era prior. The revelation that said, there's where you go to meet with God. And always when people set up alternative places to worship, God said, no, 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 no. It's one of the reasons that the ten tribes in the north went into captivity. 
It wasn't that they didn't worship God. They just amalgamated with the other gods and worshiped in different places. They ignored the word of God. Jesus now says, your mountain and our mountain are now going to be superseded by worship that will take place in spirit and truth. That's an earth-shaking statement. Jesus is saying, my presence is bringing something so new. And notice, a time is coming and is now here when this shift is going to take place. You see, seeing Jesus as the answer key to all revelation helps us appreciate what it is he has done and what it means to truly worship him. Space is now no longer the key issue. You don't go here or there. It's what is God doing by his revelation and his word. When I was privileged to to study at RTS, one of the things that brought me the greatest joy was studying biblical theology. Understanding how God gave types and shadows of what he was going to do. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He doesn't discard it. He fulfills it. And as we come to him, the great shift in redemptive history has happened because God, the Son, has come to us. The great superiority of Jesus is what makes us look to him and say, I no longer go to types and shadows because now God has sent the Savior. Where do you find salvation? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where do you find the presence of God? In Jesus Christ. Where do you worship As we gather together today as living stones being built together as a holy temple unto the Lord. I think you should be glad this morning that you didn't have to bring your lamb with you to church. Aren't you glad? Because when Jesus Christ hanging on the cross said, it is. Something so superior had come. It's no wonder there was an earthquake. You see, it's amazing that the world held together at all. Something so superior. Let me urge you, if you don't take anything else away, Stand in awe of him. God is still seeking worshipers to worship him. He's doing it even today, right here. Aren't you glad? I am too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, the mighty name that is above every name, I ask, O God, that you would bless us 
I pray that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts. I pray that we would understand that when we have come to Christ, there is nothing greater, nothing more superior. Along with Thomas, we confess with our mouths and our hearts, my Lord, my God, Jesus be magnified in this place as we anticipate coming to the Lord's table, I pray even now, soften our hearts that this one who is so superior would be willing to suffer and die so that we might be saved from our sins. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name.